Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations, exploring overshoot grief, grounding in gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host, and in this conversation, recorded in September 2019, I speak with Larry Rasmussen, who's probably the most esteemed and recognized social ethicist, environmental ethicist within certainly the Protestant tradition. Um, he is Professor Emeritus now at Union Theological Seminary. Uh, he held the Reinhold Niebuhr Chair in Social Ethics. He's written a number of books. He, he wrote a book back in 1970s, I think it was 1972, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, Reality and Resistance, and uh, really showed that Bonhoeffer lived out his faith in a radical way. Uh, his most recent books are Earth Honoring Faith, 2012. In fact, he has a series of Earth Honoring Faith, or he's had a series of Earth Honoring Faith workshops at Ghost Ranch most years for the last four or five years, and then Earth Community Earth Ethics in 1996. And Larry lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. He's, uh, in terms of Christians who really apply their faith in a pro-future way, there's nobody I hold in higher esteem than Larry. Larry, it's been uh, been a while since we've seen each other in Santa Fe, and I'm absolutely thrilled that you can be part of this series because, as I shared with you the last time that I saw you, I really count you as a significant older brother on the path of what you call earth-honoring faith, or ecology is the heart of theology is the language that I've been using. Um, and so I would like to begin by uh, giving you the opportunity to share for those who are watching or listening to this conversation who don't know who you are, uh, have us get a sense of, you know, what your accomplishments are, what you do professionally, and, and what you're particularly concerned about or passionate about these days. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> Good to see you again as well. Um, well, I've been retired now for 15 years. Uh, I was teaching at Union Theological Seminary before that in the Reinhold Niebuhr Chair of Social Ethics. And... Uh, in that capacity and in connection with quite a long involvement with the World Council of Churches, I became deeply interested in, um, I started out Christian ethics, theological and social ethics uh, pertaining to what was happening to the planet. Um, but in, in retiring, I did some significant writing at that time. A book, Earth Community, Earth Ethics came out in 19, 96 and uh, yeah actually don't don't go through that too fast i mean your 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 two, your two books are really uh, those two books are very substantial so say a little bit about each of your uh, 1996 book um and also your 2014 book yeah well earth community earth ethics um really did come out of that 10 years as a co-moderator of the Justice, Peace, Creation unit of the World Council of Churches. Now I was working full time as a professor at Union Seminary, but on the side, uh, working with, with that Justice, Peace, Creation theme of the World Council. And that exposure in all of those meetings around the world, that exposure was one that was vital to me for understanding these issues as uh, always connected. And, and what came up with the uh, papal encyclical, Laudato Si, mm -hmm. the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, together was what had been my experience mm -hmm. in, in, from 1990 to 2000. 
So uh, that's where Earth Community Earth Ethics uh, came from. And I quit using the word environment and tried to find another phrase. And the one that I'd come up with is Earth Honoring, because all of these issues are indeed deeply and profoundly uh, interconnected. And people tended to hear environment and think of that which was around them. <laughs> rather than that which was, they were a part of and deeply yeah. and profoundly affecting it. Yes, exactly. So that, one of my, hang on just a second. I just wanted to interject one of my favorite quotes from Thomas Berry, who I know we both hold in high esteem. Yeah. Um, he said, the environment is not our surroundings. It's our source, sustenance, and end. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Well, that's it. And, and, and you just mentioned Thomas Berry and in addition to the World Council of Churches engagement, my engagement with Barry um, was, was also one of the, those very significant ones. And I once taught a course on Thomas Barry's thought, tried to get convince him at the time to join me. And he, he was very reticent to be in a course about himself. And I only convinced him to come the first and the last day. But nonetheless, um, he has been a major significance and significant in a major way for me. Um, and the journey of the universe uh, with Brian Swim and Mary Evelyn uh, Tucker is a DVD that I often use yes, in yes. teaching. And I retired in 2004 uh, with a couple of things in view. One is to write a major book which shifted my own field from Christian ethics per se to the broader field of religious ethics. So that book is titled Earth Honoring Faith, Religious Ethics in a New Key. And, I, and, I, and, what, what, and what do you mean by in a new key? I mean, I know because yeah. I've read it, but yeah. not for listeners. Yes. Um, a new key is that the major categories um, by which we understand and assign our responsibility as human beings have to be changed because resp our responsibility to one another has been understood as an intra-human yeah. um, relationship. So we think of loving neighbor and we think of only the human neighbor. Um, we think of responsibility we mean to other people. Uh, the new key is that responsibility is coterminous with the ecosphere as a, as a whole. Exactly. What I call them moral externalities when we didn't incorporate our responsibility to earth, air, fire, and water into our notion of responsibility itself. Exactly. So that's the new key. Yeah, I see it as the shift from human-centeredness or anthropocentrism yeah. to ethics in a ecocentric or life-centered way. Yes, oh, right. Yeah, incidentally, I came across the other day something from way back in philosophy class where we uh, cited the, the Greeks, man is the measure of all things. And my, my feeling of late is that man is the measure of very few things. <laughs> yeah, a few, few things uh, characterize um, 
what's wrong, what, what went wrong with our world and why we are in the mess we are now than that idea that man is the measure of all things. I think, I think yeah. the only one that may be worse than that is man, conqueror of nature. Oh, well, yes, this Promethean stance, yeah. I, I have to add that being retired for 15 years in New Mexico and coming in closer contact with um, the Puebloan uh, Indians here mm-hmm. has given me, uh, has forced attention to indigenous wisdom in ways that I hadn't paid attention when I was in New York. I would hear of that, again, through World Council of Churches, but I hadn't really studied the relationship yes, of, yes. of human beings to the, to the rest of their relatives. Yes, exactly. Uh, in, in a way that I have here and my so my my shift to religious ethics in a new key is an effort in part to understand what is the relationship of human beings to to the to the rest of the natural world and i say rest of yes exactly exactly right that's great. And, and say just a little bit about uh, the Earth Honoring Faith Decade project at Ghost Ranch. Um, when I retired uh, to uh, Santa Fe, I wanted to keep a couple of things going. One is to work on a, a bigger book, and that is Earth Honoring Faith. And the other one was to propose to Ghost Ranch a decade-long project in which we would take the various topics that were currently of vital importance to both human society and to the rest of uh, nature and have conversations around them. Um, And I proposed that to the board with the proviso that earth honoring faith might also be the rubric for the ranches, consideration of its water use, food, energy, um, the the entire range of things that the ranch was attending to, program, and so on. And they were amenable to that, but not a whole lot came of that. What did come of of that project was an annual seminar. So I can just give you a couple of quick examples. That'd be great. Um, Water and the baptismal life. What's the connection between the literal waters of life and the sacramental understanding of water? Or the Eucharist and your food shed. What's the connection between a sacramental understanding of food and practices there? And nutrition, where the food comes from, what's the condition of the land and the workers that produce it? Always trying to move back and forth between a kind of religion and ecology, if you will, with both, and I always tried to get people who were um, working on these issues. So for water and the baptismal life, got some people who are, spend all of their time on water issues, whether it's engineering or whatever it is, and then people who are, who are teaching um, uh, Christian practices in this particular case. We did, we did uh, this planet as paradise, um, ecological restoration uh, issues. Uh, so that's the kind of conversation that I wanted to get going. That, uh, and we finished with Journey of the Universe 
focus, focusing on cosmology and scientific cosmologies and religious cosmologies. In our circumstances, what's the conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's great. I, I, you know, I, meant, I mentioned at the beginning that I held you as an older brother on the path. Well, Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm and okay. Brian Swim are some of the most significant uh, older siblings uh, yeah, as okay. well. Yeah. How do you, how do you language for yourself uh, and others um, sort of our predicament and, and what's unfolding? Yeah, well, I've gone through some significant changes there uh, of late. Even though I've been retired now for a good long while, I've done semester-long teaching at Union Seminary, spring of 18, and at Yale uh, Divinity School. And I've just come back from some time teaching at Cambridge University in England. And I've taught climate ethics in those, in those uh, places. And the one book that I've used that has caught on with everybody, and these are very diverse audiences, because the one at Yale was uh, students from the Divinity School and students from the School of Forestry and Environmental Sciences right. and a master's degree on religion and ecology. So I had half scientists yes, in exactly. their students, uh, whereas the one at um, one at, at Union was heavily, heavily interfaith because Union has gone that way. So my TA was a Hindu, and I had five world religions in a class of eighteen students. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Cambridge life similarly is very international in this case, not not necessarily so much interfaith, mm -hmm. but the one book that everybody grabbed a hold of was Robert, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. Amen. Well, and what happened, what happened there for me personally is that while I was well-tuned to apocalypse beforehand, her tone is not apocalyptic, even though she knows all of the destructive uh, destruction that has happened in that chapter in the on the sacred and the superfund uh, lays that all out. So my 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 I I understand apocalypse, and all you have to do is keep up with the climate science. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it's the 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 language of apocalypse has shifted from arcane religious texts to <laughs> uh, everyday science reports. You know, uh, so but it's now the kind of relationship of reciprocity that she lays out in that book. And uh, she knows about grief. Uh, you and I know about grief. But gratitude uh, and the sacred become the language uh, for me. And I, when I went to Union, having been a Union grad and knowing the propensity of Union students to always be organizing some kind of protest. I was certain that I would be landing in the middle of all kind of protests against the outrageous uh, <clears throat> things that the Trump administration was doing. And I found very little. And I started asking people, why not? Right. And they all ended up saying in one way or another, because all of our attention is post-Trump. And what we're trying to do right now is plant seeds. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was, you know, and and that was another reason why I think they resonated with 
braiding sweetgrass is because they, they saw that kind of thing happening. <laughs> so that's been a switch for me from yeah. apocalyptic language to language of reciprocity. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm, I'm looking at it on my screen. I just pulled this off the internet maybe a week, week, and, week and a half ago. Uh, it has this, uh, it, it's on the inside of the window of a large bookstore. You don't know where it is, but it's some bookstore. And this big sign says, please note, the post-apocalyptic fiction section has been moved to current affairs. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, let me let me add though, uh, Michael, that um, even though I'm very taken with the book and will continue to be uh, influenced uh, by it, the reports on what's happening to the planet are all worse <laughs> than any of us imagine. I mean, what we know about climate system change is almost all bad. What we don't know is probably worse. I like that. Um, I'll probably steal that language, brother. We preachers do that sort of thing, as you know. <laughs> I mean, just what you see <laughs> yes, exactly. at the front edge of things right. uh, portends something worse. So when I read David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth, I, people have asked me about it, who asked me if that they should be reading that. And my response is, yes, you should, but you should not be reading it alone. Amen. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I'm not backing off of uh, an assessment of where we are uh, that because of braiding sweet glass is changed. No, it is not. It's how do we respond amidst the, the the likelihood of collapse on a massive scale. Uh, I, when I've been teaching, I find that people do respond in a knowing way to Thomas Berry's line, planetary well-being is primary, human well-being is derivative. Exactly. It's always been derivative. Exactly. But now, since we're pushing the boundaries, uh, and, well, where we don't have any latitude, Yes, uh, any longer, then you need to really figure this out. And, and, people and, 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 it's, hum and it's humbling because you and I have been um, immersed within a, uh, a Christian, albeit liberal and progressive, but nonetheless Christian context. And our tradition hasn't exactly um, supported a deeply ecological, I mean, there are, obviously there are pockets, sure. Yeah. But in, in, the, in the mainstream, in the whole, and certainly fundamentalism, um, hasn't supported a deeply ecological worldview. I've been spending a lot of time with this, um, with these issues of what are the revisions in the moral world or our, our way of thinking about, as I mentioned before, a way of thinking about responsibilities. And I could think myself into a black hole when I look at the ones that we've been <clears throat> traditionally using and which are so deeply a part of our own um, exactly. apparatus. But the one that bothered me most was the loss of serious, of serious tradition and ethics, and it's not just Christian ethics, not just religious ethics, um, but ethics generally of an ethics of consequences. Now you've got to pay attention to them, but the point now is that we have no idea 
what the long-term deep time consequences are for action. So if your ethic is based on uh, the historical outcome, being able to see that uh, and then reflecting back on that probable outcome to determine what you should do, that's a tradition that isn't helpful. Exactly. Well, there are two other traditions and I've been turning more and more to them. And one of them is virtue ethics, where you focus on what are the qualities of character, both for you personally and for society, because societies have virtues and vices too, of course. What are the qualities that you want to uh, promote and internalize as that which typifies who you are and what you're about? And um, one, uh, Thomas Merton um, got a letter from Jim uh, Forrest, uh, and Jim Forrest was despondent in his uh, protests against the Vietnam War because he didn't think the protests were getting anywhere. And Thomas Merton wrote back to him and said, what you should focus on, I mean, sort of let God and the universe sort it all out, but what you should focus on are uh, relationships of nonviolent love. And yeah. wherever that goes, that's probably the right, the right disposition. So that's one thing. And then, so I've been kind of focusing on what are the eco virtues mm -hmm. that we should be practicing in these circumstances where we have no idea even about survival of our particular species and all species. Uh, there are no internal species or immortal species. So. And then the, the, the third element of any good ethic is that there are some bottom line principles. There are, there are here I stand, I can do no other uh, kind of things. And what, what are those? And that's where I, I was taken with Robert Wall Kimmerer. So, so there are alternatives to the one that we always use with our pragmatic utilitarian uh, ethic that's got us into such trouble here. And that is kind of consequences and with a human view to human being only. Take as much time as you'd like, but give us a sense of your, your, your story, your journey, your testimonial, if you will, yeah. uh, of how you came to an understanding now of our world in contraction, in overshoot of uh, right. climate. And, and what was that like for emotionally? Because it seems to me every season, there will be millions more people that have moved out of denial and yet haven't fully gotten to acceptance, much less the sort of the, finding the gift on the other side of acceptance, yeah. they're yeah. still in one form of bargaining or anger or depression. Right. So yeah. anything that you can share of your own personal story yeah. that would be of, of Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I do need to, you know, as one gets old, you do think more about growing up and, and childhood. And I, I do realize that even though I was, as a child, not conscious of it at the time, having a kind of free range childhood, on the West Bank, West uh, <clears throat> Fork of the Des Moines River in rural uh, Minnesota, where after we did our homework, we were outside all the time. And that included four seasons, even yes, though it was yes. cold Minnesota. And I have no doubt that that kind of um, uh, life uh, with the rest of the natural world left a deep imprint that I didn't lose, even though. I lived in big cities, Washington, yeah. D.C., and New York City, primarily for most of uh, 
most of my life since I was 25. Um, but uh, to jump uh, ahead, um, I my first, well, not my first job, but second job, I never expected to be teaching in seminaries and ended up doing almost nothing else. And the first one was Wesley Seminary in Washington, DC. And that <clears throat> was during the Carter administration. And <clears throat> the rise of OPEC and then Jimmy Carter sitting and addressing the nation in his cardigan sweater talking about the energy crisis, right. which was, which was um, tagged as his melee speech, even though he never used the word melee. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that told you much more about the reception of the general public exactly. than it did Jim, Jimmy Carter. Exactly. But I, I was teaching at the time and I thought uh, about my, <clears throat> my PhD advisor, Roger Shin, waving the book, The Limits to Growth, in front of us every time yes. we were together. So I started looking at The Limits to Growth, which in 1972, and the energy crisis in Washington, D.C., and decided to offer a course in, in energy and ethics. And that was sort of the beginning, and I never left attention yes. to that. I, yeah. I had no idea about what was happening uh, to, to the planet other than um, there seemed to be something important on energy, yeah. energy issues and fossil fuels. Um, and then beyond that, uh, continuing, I mentioned 10 years with the World Council of Churches. You know, the World Council of Churches had a program toward a just um, participatory and sustainable society. And I think gave the world that word sustainability as pertaining to society rather than timber harvests or fish catches or right. uh, that notion of sustainability. And I, I just got really interested in what makes for a sustainable uh, society out of, of that. And then, then, they, then the World Council had a, had a meeting in Vancouver and they voted the uh, theme for the next seven years, justice, peace, and the integrity of creation except no one knew what integrity of creation <laughs> meant that they just voted. So, and it was at that time that I became one of the co-chairs of the commission that had to figure out what it meant. And that delving into integrity of creation put me in touch with what, uh, of this kind of profound uh, interconnectedness at levels that we, we are only slightly aware of at any given time and that that has gone on uh since since then so it's been those those kinds of those kinds of experiences that have brought me to where i where i am now yeah well let me ask a different kind of question because um and this is just occurring to me now i don't think i've asked anybody else this in this way how has it been for you in knowing that if you could somehow major, wave a magic wand and get billions of people to think and feel like you do, or certainly to think and feel in a more ecological, long-term, genuinely sustainable way, that that could make a real difference. And yet to see that that's precisely what's not happening yeah. um, at any level and any scale, um, how has that been for you to 
to, you know, there was a time when most of us who envisioned a better world, a more <laughs> ecologically just, sustainable future, um, genuinely believed that it was possible. And most of us are, are certainly uh, no longer hold it as possible, certainly in the short term, prior yeah. to prior to contraction and collapse. So how has that been for you to recognize and to see so little responsiveness in the political and economic and even in the theological spheres? Yeah. Well, I have to say, I mean, I read through some of the questions that you outlined uh, for this conversation and, and, um, and I appreciated them very much. I, I have never had the same sense of kind of psychological distress that a lot of folks do and that I run into all the time, including people who came to those 10 years of Goshen seminars. There was a lot of psychological distress going on. And I have to ask myself why that's the case. And it's, it may be because I'm easily deceived, but it may, there may, well, be, it, 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 may <laughs> it may be that you're an Enneagram five, very rational <laughs> person. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I know that one reason is that the main theme in most of my writing, and it hasn't all been on environmental issues, and you teach social ethics, you do a lot in a lot of different uh, arenas, um, but the main theme has been community. And that's because it has been so vitally important to me personally. And what I see as such a deficit for in so many people's lives is they don't have any experience of close ongoing community with the possible exception of uh, their families and some of those are pretty dysfunctional but uh, they, they there isn't a cross-section of the neighborhood they live in or the city they live in that meets on a regular basis where intimate connections are formed and when we lived in Washington, D.C., we were a part of an intentional uh, Christian community that was a mile in diameter, and you needed to live inside that mile mm -hmm. so that you could have a common life together. And out of that common life together came your worship, reflection, and so on and so forth. And then likewise, when we moved to New York, we were a part of a congregation that reflected the upper or Morningside Heights, and but cross-section, racially, ethnically, class, and so on. Those have been vital yes. communities yes. Uh, for me. And I think the reason I have never had, um, um, and I, I know something about trauma, but it's thinking about what my grandsons face um, rather than personal yes, exactly. um, psychological uh, distress. I think it's because uh, close community has always been the, the place in which I have focused what, what actions I've been taking and talked to people about. Uh, yes, exactly. Were, were you a part of Sojourners community in Washington? Well, the curious thing was that Sojourners community, the uh, Church of the Savior, Community for Creative Nonviolence, and the uh, community of Christ that we were a part of, we're all in the same neighborhood. Oh, fast. It was a very exciting time and efforts at community. And that, even though I didn't teach those communities, that's behind when I wrote a book called Moral Fragments and Moral Community. It's those communities in that neighborhood and the experience there. 
Yeah, um, I have no doubt. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of the, the vital necessity of community. Paul Shepard famously talked about the fact that, you know, humans, uh, well, bees thrive in hives, wolves thrive in packs, humans thrive in tribes, and we don't tend to thrive outside them. There's yeah. certain, yes. almost, uh, almost a, uh, a, a psychosis uh, when we lack genuine community. Um, uh, and, and, and now we don't even have extended families, most people anymore. And I think there's a real consequence. I think there's a real cost. Yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. And the community I grew up in as a child, you know, that's, that's, that's of course, long gone. But that was a, it wasn't necessarily a very just community, but it was an intact one. Yes, exactly. And though there aren't intact communities over the long haul for most people. So it has to be created. And in Santa Fe, we have one. You know, so that becomes the focus. In fact, I just had a meeting yesterday to sit down with a pastor to talk about uh, creating, uh, what's the ratcheting up of the environmental, they're still calling environmental ministry of this congregation. It's done a whole lot. We, we all know we've got to go to a different place now. Well, it'll only be done in community. Right. It won't be me sitting here right. with my uh, keyboard. Right. And the bulk of it won't be done until we're forced to. That's part of yeah. the, our nature collectively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well you it, mentioned... Yeah. You mentioned before, Larry, about um, the universe story, um, Thomas Berry, Brian Swim, Mary Evelyn Tucker, uh, the journey of the universe. Say a little bit about how this big per picture perspective has informed and inspired you or helped you in some way. Yeah, well, it's exactly uh, a part of thinking about all of this in terms of community. Because there's a local face-to-face -face, uh, relationships that are vital to uh, community. There's a community of the wider world, the natural world around us, but that's also a community of which I'm a part. And, and uh, you, you, have, you need to take that now to the farthest reaches of the universe itself. And that is our community. We may have but a speck of time in that community, but that's the one to which I, we, all of us belong. Yeah. And if we understand that that is our community, then it tends to come back a la Joanna Macy mm -hmm. or others to inform our understandings of our present uh, moment, brief as it is, in that larger uh, frame. When you look at how, how essential death is at every scale of the universe, that you can't have a universe without impermanence and death. And that so in a, in a very real way, death is, is natural, it's necessary, and it's no less sacred than life. Because myself doesn't stop with my skin. That larger sense of self, that larger sense of community uh, is deeply soul-nourishing. And it helps me embrace the, the, the sacred necessity of impermanence and death. Yeah. Yes, well, I'm, I'm wrestling with that these days. Um, and my um, wrestling with the journey of the universe as a framework in the work of Thomas Berry continues to be one in which I, I embrace it, including the impermanence and, and uh, death, on the one hand, uh, but, but find it's not 
um, strong enough uh, to face the kind of suffering that many communities and many species face. I can't, I can't easily do a, do a theodicy of that level of suffering that I know is present uh, in, in the universe. I mean, uh, read the astrophysicists about all the violence that's going on out there. And, and yes, it's in, in uh, some of it has made for life. In fact, I wrote a letter to our older grandchild and I said, Dear Eduardo, this is a love letter, but not the usual kind. It's the first one ever written by a grandparent in one geological epoch to a grandchild in another geological uh, epoch. And then I talk about the fact wow. that the apple in his backpack and the calcium in his teeth and the gold, if he ever wears a, a wedding ring, are all the gift of dead stars, you know, and so stardust to earth dust to who we are uh, as a part of this love letter. Yeah. Um, and that's all fine. But then I think about what his generation and those that come after him are going to be facing. And I find myself wrestling with, yes, the, with of course. suffering and death in ways that at least for me isn't uh, the consolation isn't sufficiently strong yes. that this is, a, this is the way things go. The need to flip the leadership from the elders to the youth. Yeah, Where yeah. those of us of my age or your age or 20 years younger than, than you uh, are there in support of and offering what we can to the leadership that the youth uh, take up, and it's it's it's. We've had so much time with the post-industrial revolution notion of progress <laughs> that our leadership um, is tainted yes, by exactly. all of that. Now let's hand it over to a generation that has to face the consequences and have their own ideas of what seeds need to be planted. Yeah. Wow. That's a powerful, the way you phrase that really strikes me as fresh and new. I hadn't thought about it quite like that. And yet it's, it's, it's an inspiring vision. Um, you know, I am curious, uh, uh, what's your sense? Let, like, let's say this is, this is wildly successful. Yeah. Um, what's your sense of what's, what's no longer possible. In other words, it's already now certain yeah. things are inevitable. What's your sense of what's no longer possible. And then what still is possible individually or collectively. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Um, uh, I, Josh Fox, um, documentarian, mm -hmm. yep. uh, had a documentary called um, Letting Go of This World and Loving All the Things Climate Cannot Change. Yes, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been trying to think of you know, letting go of this fossil fuel consumerist world and loving all of the things that climate cannot change. And at that point, um, I don't know, uh, since the human economy, global human economy and the nature's economy are the things that are at loggerheads with one another, of course I'm always interested in concretely figuring out what a different kind of economy is, what that looks like at the farmer's market or wherever. Um, people are working at that locally. But 
I also want to um, recognize that beauty is its own kind of resistance. And to be a part of the creation of, of uh, beauty, and whether it's in, in music or in the fine arts or wherever it is, or just uh, play together, um, to be doing that. Um, and, and the cultivation of wonder. Now, that isn't just from Thomas Berry, that's from a lot of other sources as well. But in this letter to my grandson, I say, what I most want for you uh, and your, <clears throat> now your little brother is that you lose yourself in the kaleidoscope of creation in a way that, that nurtures wonder in your life. So there are these things that climate cannot change. <laughs> I mean, will have an impact. But yes. to cultivate wonder, to cultivate uh, beauty, to um, basically um, live the deep values that we hold. And when I talk with people about this uh, and ask them what do they most value that they want to pass on, then it comes to something like that. They don't, they don't say any longer, well, I hope that our grandkids are richer than we were. Yeah, yeah exactly. Not rich and richer, and that's, I mean, richer yes. in other senses. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, wealthy in all the things that money can't buy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Larry, this is fabulous. I just thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Uh, obviously, the next time that we're in the Santa Fe area, I'll reach out to yeah. you. You're around, uh, yeah. we'll get together. And yeah. thanks, for, thanks for taking on this project, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're welcome. It's, it's something I can't not do. It's just something yeah. that I have so much passion for. So yeah. good. good. Okay. Thanks. All right. Take, take yeah. care. Ah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.